Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So today we are going to discuss what is, in my humble opinion, one of the most pivotal moments in human history. Not just American history, not just modern history, in human history. And that is the Roswell incident. Now, many of you are probably familiar with that particular incident, and I'm guessing a lot of you may believe the story that it was a weather balloon, or may you, maybe you believe that something odd or different happened there, maybe something the government didn't quite want to let you know about, but you may not believe that there was an alien craft that crashed there along with three alien bodies. I can understand how that can be a little fantastical, but today's guest, Tom Carey, has devoted his life to uncovering the secrets behind Roswell, and the way he did that was interviewing just about every single person who was involved with that incident from crash to delivery, and it's about 600 people. And I believe today, after listening to his stories and listening to the stories of those who were directly involved, you're going to think that something strange and mysterious happened in the desert on the uh, in 1947. Maybe you're not going to believe aliens. Maybe you're not going to believe craft. But I do believe, at the end of this discussion, you will be of the opinion that something very odd happened in July of 1947. So let's get right into this with Tom Carey. I'm very excited to talk about this. So Tom, thank you so much for being on the show today. You know, and we're coming up. This is this is this is weird. For, probably weirder for you than it is for me. But this is the 75th anniversary of Roswell, which is crazy because you haven't been working on it that long, but it's got to feel like you've been working on it that long. Well, I've been working on it uh, this year is 31 years, 31 years on the Roswell case. Yeah. Wow. And that's a pretty long time. Very long. (laughs) That's a very long time. It's so long that I, uh, I was looking over our book just, you know, you, I, I think, um, you, uh, yeah, I think you yeah, have fit a, a, yeah, fit a shameless plug in here. We, we got yeah, stick it in yeah. there right at the, right at the beginning. Yeah. Yes, uh, the this is our twelfth book that uh, my co-author and I have put together since two thousand and seven was our first one. Wow. Two thousand and seven, uh, and most likely it's our last book because all of the principles on the case are pass have passed away. Right. There may be some still out there, but the the youngest at the time are, are in their nineties if they're still alive. Right. And, uh, <laughs> right. I'm sure we didn't find any anybody. Everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, we found up to like 600 witnesses who talked to us. 600. Yeah. And uh, there's still some out there. I'm sure that we never could locate or we're unaware of that are still alive, but we're, we're unaware of it. So mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes, Daniel, uh, our proactive stage of the investigation is over. 
by proactive, right. I mean, we're out there shaking the tree for witnesses to fall out. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, yeah. you guys did a lot of shaking. 600 is is quite a number. Yeah. Uh, and this is a great book. So we're talking about Witness to Roswell, uh, which you're a co-author on. You know, it's funny. So I did uh, an episode of this show with Stanton Friedman for the 70th anniversary of, of Roswell. And what was great about his book and his story is just, you know, that – Roswell was kind of swept under the rug. I think three days after, you know, the famous weather balloon explanation came out, no one remembered this until Stanton Friedman kind of dug it up in the 80s, I think it was. It was uh, back in 1947, Daniel. It was a two-day story. A two-day story. The first day was with a big headline, Roswell Army Airfield captures flying saucer in Roswell region. Mm-hmm. They use the term R-A-A-F. And that doesn't mean the Royal Air Force or the Royal Australian Air Force. It stands right. for Roswell Army Airfield. A lot of people get confused about that. But right. the first headline was they captured a flying saucer. They, they mm-hmm. had one. Flying uh, disc. A flying disc, I believe flying, they said. Well, right? the, the headline said flying saucer. Oh, did it say saucer? Okay. Yeah, yes. And it went around the world just like Boom! They never ex- they never expected it to go around the world, right? And uh, so the next day, all of a sudden, the headline is: "It's not a flying saucer; it's a weather balloon." Now, you you tell me. Uh, what most people didn't know is that the group, the Roswell, the 509th bomb group at Roswell. This is the outfit that ended World War II. Mm-hmm. By dropping two atomic bombs on Japan, the 509th Bomb Group, that's what was at Roswell. Yeah. The most elite military unit in the United States arsenal. These are not, you know, some low down outfit. This is the top, the top of our uh, top of the line. Mm-hmm. So they say um, flying saucer one day. The next day, it's a weather balloon. How could somebody with their fingers on the atomic trigger, mm-hmm. the Roswell uh, 509th, uh, Daniel, is still in existence today. Mm-hmm. It, and yeah. its mission is still the same, to drop nuclear weapons on an enemy. That's what they were created for in 1942. That's what they were doing in 1947. That's what their mission is, still is today. They're at Whiteman uh, Whiteman Air Force Base in uh, I ha- I can't pronounce this not Nuster not Nuster Missouri some crazy name I can't I'm killing it but uh, mm-hmm. they're right. they're located in Missouri they fly B two Spirit bombers instead of B 29s like they did in World War Two yeah and uh, how could they make a mistake like that to to misidentify a spaceship, which back in those days they called them interplanetary, interplanetary. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to get too I don't want to get too far ahead of the story here, Tom, because um, uh, I want to do this in the proper order so people listening they understand exactly what's going on. Yeah, so they um, may be sleep already. <laughs> well, uh, you know, because you know we don't. Uh, this isn't a paranormal show. It's not a UFO yeah. show. So a lot of people might be are probably interested, maybe never have heard the story before. So I don't want to jump too far ahead. And I bring up Stanton Friedman, not for a shameless plug for me, which I'm more than happy to do, but because it shows just how little interest was
was in this story, as you mentioned, it's a two-day story. No one talked about it for decades until Stanton Friedman started asking questions and wrote his books. Yes. Uh, and you guys kind of picked up the ball. And, you know, it's it's pretty amazing the work that you've done interviewing. Yeah, I, I, like you said, I don't know that it's everybody, but it's really close. And what fascinated me uh, just as, as a quick little teaser here, is just how similar everyone's story really was. And the great thing about this book, which just captured me instantly, was that you're you're hearing a story from one person, let's say loading something onto an airplane, and then you get the guy, the pilot, driving who, who flew the airplane, and then you get his perspective of that item coming into the into the the airplane, and then the people who received it on the other end. I mean, it's you got everybody, which is kind of cool. And that level of research, Tom, I've got to ask you this: this is not something a person does on a weekend. You said you spent thirty-one years on it. What is your driving force, right? I mean, I want to know how you got into UFOs how you found Roswell and why the, you know, this is your life's work, basically. How did you become so singularly focused and want to solve this particular mystery? I was interested in UFOs as a teenager. You know, okay. what, are, what, are, what are these things that are flying around our sky that our fighter jets can't keep up with? That's how mm -hmm. I got interested. And, uh, and those are the Foo Fighters, which is not not the band, the actual Foo Fighters, the ones that the Air Force couldn't see, right? Yes, the band yeah. too, yeah. But yeah, no, but yeah. The, the, uh, Foo Love Fighters. Love David Grohl, yeah. <laughs> from World War II. Yeah. And then uh, in, 19, uh, in the 1950s, they, they were still unexplained. Right. But, the, but the, the whole subject of UFOs was like taboo, Daniel. Mm -hmm. It was taboo mm -hmm. because right. you had a lot of crazy people claiming to be, uh, oh, I know my space brothers just took me around the universe and they're flying. So, oh, geez. Yeah. Well, that's still gave, going on, Tom. That's still, <laughs> yes, yes. unfortunately. So uh, I never heard about the Roswell case myself okay. until the Stanton Friedman, uh, he, his name is not on the book cover because they wanted somebody more famous at the time who was right. uh, Charles Berlitz. He uh, just had a big, Best-selling okay. book on the Bermuda Triangle. So the, let's ah. let's put let's put Charles Berlitz on the cover of the book and t delete Stanton Friedman. But Stanton Friedman was the first one to contact uh, one of the participants, a major participant in the original story mm -hmm. in 1978. And uh, it was you know he called a fellow up. So because somebody said, oh, you want to talk to this guy. He was in Louisiana giving one of his UFOs our real talks. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be Jesse Marcel, the base intelligence officer. Right. And that opened the door that kick-started the, this is 1978, the uh, reopening of the Roswell case. It had been dead for 30 years. Mm -hmm. 30 years it had been dead, swept under the rug. Stanton Friedman and his cohort, William Moore, who did a book on the Philadelphia experiment, which is mm -hmm. a you know, paranormal type book. Mm -hmm. And so two years later, they wrote the Roswell Incident book, 1980. I read that book and it blew me away. Mm -hmm. It blew me away. And here's why. Because it wasn't like, oh, did you see that? Light in the sky. Oh, yeah, tell me about it. Oh, it right. went this way and that. It wasn't that at all. It was about a nuts and bolts craft 
that apparently crashed. There were bodies on it, extraterrestrial mm -hmm. bodies. It was covered up, swept under the rug, and death threats were made to witnesses. I mean, it had right. everything that a good mystery has. And yeah, like I said, right. it, yeah. it blew me away for other UFO stories. So for 31 years, my focus has been on this one case. It's like, do you remember the movie uh, with Paul Newman called The Verdict? I, I don't. I, I'm, I know a lot of television. I went to school for television. I'm embarrassed that I haven't seen it. So I, it's going to okay, go on the list right of, now. It's one of his great roles. He was a lawyer uh, who was not doing very well, but this paraplegic came in mm -hmm. and said, oh boy, you know, because when a lawyer gets a paraplegic come in, you can, you know, he can start looking for that house in the mountains. <laughs> and you know. sure. But anyway, he, w he was offered a settlement for this for this woman who was wrongly, uh, uh, you know, made a paraplegic. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, I'm going to turn it down to his uh, his gopher. You know, every lawyer has like a gopher that they, mm -hmm. do, they do all the footwork. And the gopher says, take the, take the settlement, take the settlement. There'll be other cases. Mm -hmm. He says, no, this is the case. This is the only case. So he took it to trial and won. So for me, the Roswell case, this is the case. This is the only case that yeah. will saw that, that it's incontrovertible yeah. that uh, we, we had a crash or landing by someone from somewhere else uh, in the universe. No doubt about it in my mind. Yeah. Over 600 witnesses. So that's why uh, the other cases. Uh, you know, I'll hear about, but I don't, don't do anything with it because there's only one case for me. And sure. it is labor intensive. Yeah. Uh, finding, all the, finding the witnesses, interviewing them. I've been to New Mexico 50 times, uh, Roswell the same. And mm -hmm. uh, every time we get a new witness, boom, it's, it's, it's like a spark plug to yeah. go on to the next one. Yeah. Well, and I can imagine, as you mentioned, the case kind of has everything and there's a lot of, I think it's unique for several different reasons and why it's captured people's attention for several different reasons. And not the least of which is all the things that you mentioned, but I think what makes it unique and why you're able to get all of these interviews is because in some ways, you know, I know there's lots of talk about ancient aliens. One of my, one of my uh, uh, collaborators is a guest on ancient aliens pretty often. And I know people talk about aliens visiting in the past. I don't know anything about that. But what I do know in the and modern it, it, era. And it doesn't interest me in the least. No, it, I mean, it, it's, you know, whatever. But it, it's, it's irrelevant because I think this case represents the first time where it happened in the modern era where maybe the whoever was visiting made a mistake, made a miscalculation, exactly. and it crashed. And the government didn't know what to do about it. And this was so this this set their protocol for if this were ever to happen again, which is why there are so many people involved, why the circles were so big. People couldn't believe it. And so it lends a lot of credence to this being very possible. And I think, you know, the other thing I want to mention here really quickly, which is extraordinarily important to understanding the Roswell case, is the context of the time. This is 1947. This is two years after the end of World War II. And by this time, if my, if my math is correct, we have, as a, as a government, kind of moved past punishing the Nazis already, you know, three years, two years later. And we've now entered the Cold War 
with with Russia. And, you know, I did a whole episode on the MKUltra experiments, which happened here. And I bring that up because people were allowed in the, Amer- in the U.S. government under the under the guise of patriotism and a need to conquer those dirty commie Russians to do whatever it took, whatever whatever rights of individuals you needed to crush and, and step on. We need to defeat the Russians because that is the that is determining the fate of the world. And these are the times these are the types of responsibilities that were put on patriotic coming out of World War II, extraordinarily patriotic Americans who wanted to do their their they wanted to do right by the country. And that's why a lot of this stuff happened. And I, you know, the other thing I wanted to mention is that we also by that time had taken Nazi scientists. So we had that had been gone. Uh, you know, we were going straight ahead. And in 1947, in the midst of all of this, something happens in Roswell, New Mexico. Yes. Uh, and and so I want people to understand that th- that context is extraordinarily important because the things you hear and the stories you tell and even the stuff we don't get to, hopefully you'll read Witness to Roswell, it will make sense because it seems fantastical, but I think you will agree that it all makes sense in the context of the time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The, um, the first thought when this thing was discovered, right? Mm-hmm. Was oh my God! Was it Russian? Right. That was the big thing. Was it Russian? Mm-hmm. And they sent uh, the paperclip Germans, who you, who whom you were talking about. They Project took them clip. out. Yep. Yeah, Operation Paperclip. Mm-hmm. When they went, went uh, we went out to the site to uh, see what was there. They took the uh, Werner von Braun and a few others with them. The paper mm-hmm. paper because they wanted them to identify it as yes or no Russian. That was the I, big thing. That's not in your book, I don't think. That's fascinating. I didn't realize that. Yes, they they uh, they wanted to know for sure up front because there were these strange symbols on it. You know, yeah, maybe yeah. it was Russian Cyrillic writing or something. And, right. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So the Germans were able to say, "No, it's not Russian." Mm-hmm. Then you know, then what is it? Then they realize, "Uh oh, it's it's not Russian. What is it? And where is it from?" Mm-hmm. And uh, we had one witness who said, uh, from the time they found it, within 20 minutes, they knew what they had. From the 20 minutes of, of identifying, they it went all the way to Washington in 20 minutes. They knew what they had. Wow. And the thought was, oh, my God, what do we do with this? Because they didn't want the Russians to, to get this. This is new technology. Mm-hmm. This is new. They wanted to exploit the technology. They didn't want the Russians to, to do that. Right. You know, because the Russians, uh, uh, you know, they they were in on the atomic bomb, right? They had spies there, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, to a couple of years later, they had their own atomic bomb. So they wanted to keep it from the Russians. Yeah. And uh, the the paper clips, as you mentioned, at even before the war was over, World War Two, we knew who the next enemy, we knew who the next adversary was. Right. And uh, so that's why the uh, uh, they even the Japanese, uh, most Americans don't know, uh, you know, you've heard of the Nuremberg trials. Mm-hmm. Well, they had the Japanese equivalent of uh, Nuremberg trials because of the, the thing the Japanese had done. Mm-hmm. But at some point they said, OK, we're stopping this. Right. We have to stop this because we need the Japanese. Uh, to, you know, because the, the Japanese historical enemy is not China, it's Russia. Right. It's Russia. So, yeah. 
<laughs> things shifted very quickly. Uh, and, and so the last thing here, and I think this is why Roswell has always been an interest to me, is because, you know, you, you have a, a quote in your book by General Robert Bassard Landry. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Uh, but you say that he gave Truman quarterly reports on flying saucers. And he wanted to tell the whole story before he died. And he told his grandson, his grandson's name was Dave. And this is the quote, Dave, if I ever told you about what happened at Roswell, you would never see never life see the same way again. Again, yes. And I think exactly. that that's, that's very true. If you, if, if, and, and we're going to get to some of the stories in a second, but I want people listening to understand that if this happened and if this, if this occurred in the way in which all of the, not the way you describe it, in the way the witnesses who were there describe it, this marks a, this marks a pivotal moment in in human in human history that we may not even know about and this is 75 years ago this if you were there in that moment and you saw a crashed saucer with alien bodies in it you, the the paradigm that you held for your life for life in general for existence is completely shifted and changed and that's why I think this is so important is this would alter everyone's view of the world. Uh, and I mean, maybe I'm giving it too much weight, but that's the way it feels to me. And, I, you know, and I, I genuinely was, believe that. That was certainly a factor because there were the there were the, there was the faction. Oh, we sh we should we should uh, reveal what we have. And then there was another faction. No, we shouldn't. And then the, the, the no, we shouldn't faction won out because it actually got down to one person. Uh, hmm. General Hoyt Vandenberg, who was the going right. to be in a few months the uh, chief of staff of the Air Force, of the new Air Force, which split off from the Army uh, in September of 1947. He remembered, we're talking about uh, Vandenberg, he remembered the 1938 War of the Worlds radio broadcast was right. Orson Welles, where yeah. the East Coast went into panic. They thought the, they were landing in New right. Jersey. You know, and he read that and he says, I do not want panic in the streets. I do right. not want. So they covered it up. That was. Uh, yeah. They covered it up along with the. the we talked about the Russian threat mm, for those right. two reasons. Those were the two major reasons. It, it makes sense. I mean, because the War of the World, I mean, it's a fantastic broadcast, but, you know, the, the ramifications of that were pretty severe. People committed suicide. I mean, people were going nuts. It's a little different in that the War of the Worlds broadcast was about an alien invasion where people yes. were, were an alien invasion. Where they were actively destroying the East Coast, where this is yeah. something Rover's has crashed. Mill, Rover's Mill, New Jersey. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, which is, if, it, if you haven't heard it, it's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the best radio plays of but all time. But that was the thought. That was still the thought. Makes sense, and, yeah. Uh, that was yeah. still the thought. Is this the first of a, an invasion, you know? Right, because, okay, yeah. Because the modern age, you mentioned, you talked about the modern age of UFOs, only began two weeks previously in uh, June 24th, 1947. Right. So yeah. this, this happens two weeks after the first big sighting, which was on uh, near Mount Rainier in uh, yep. Washington State. Yeah. Two weeks after that, you have Roswell. It, oh, my goodness. Is this a, a, an invasion? Is this an right. invasion? So that was a factor as well. Yeah. And, uh, and the Battle of Los Angeles, I think, was maybe a year away. I mean, that happened within the same. I, I forget. I should know no, this. That was uh, the Battle of Los Angeles was in 1942. Uh, well, uh, was it that early? Yes. Oh, OK. My mistake. 42. Yeah. OK. 
Well, then that's before this. That could, I mean, you know, people still remember that. That that was in the newspaper. I mean, but the thing then was the oh, was you know the oh, it was uh, it had to be something Japanese. We don't know what, but it had to be something. They still don't know what that was. They still don't know what that was. You you know, it's funny about that, Tom. So I had um, I had a guy Bill Burns on to discuss the Battle of Los Angeles. I know know Bill. I know Bill. So here's what's funny uh, is that he was on Coast to Coast AM the night before talking about how the Battle of Los Angeles. You know, he was describing it and saying. You know, this was possibly um, either extraterrestrial in origin or whatever, right? Yeah. So then he comes on my show and we talk about it, and he's like, "Oh yeah, that definitely wasn't extraterrestrial. It was probably you know one of ours that we didn't. It was this as no. a a craft we didn't know." And I was like, "Dude, you just said this on a national radio. Well, it wasn't even whether you agree or not. It was you just said one thing on a national radio show, and you've just told me the literal opposite. Now I can't believe anything that you say." And I was like, "I was so annoyed by that. Not because right. I was expecting an answer. I just want to know what." you genuinely believe and clearly i can't believe you yeah why did you yeah yeah, why did you flip-flop on me um so so anyway and i say that because the battle of los angeles is an interesting story but i'm torn on what actually happened with roswell i think you lay out a a, a great argument so let's talk about the series of events now i have to admit i get a little lost with the time frame because this is basically i think between july 4th in July 10th or 11th of 1947. A lot happens in that time window. Uh, so let's just see if you, let's walk through it a little bit and then, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, I'll try to pave in the details as we need them. But did you, could you, um, through your research, were you able to pinpoint exactly yes. when the craft or whatever was struck, what day, time, and then from that point, wh- what happens? Yes. It, the, the date of the uh, the uh, that the ship exploded it, it didn't crash it exploded okay was up we went back and over the years we said was it this we were able to pinpoint it to July 2nd oh wow 19, 1947 July 2nd and the reason is that's early okay the, the people who actually heard the the explosion they remember it that it occurred during a big thunder and lightning storm. They heard a different sort of a explosion, a muffled explosion. And there was one witness who saw the craft heading northwest from Roswell on the evening of July 2nd. So you put those two together, you have, okay, it happened. Uh, and this fellow said it was on July 2nd. Okay, so we had to really nail that down. So what we were able to do was get out the old weather charts from 1947. And the only day of the week, we know it was in the first week of July, the only Mm -hmm. day that week that there was a thunderstorm in central New Mexico where this happened was on the evening of July 2nd. Interesting. So that's how we were able to pinpoint it, plus the visual sighting on the same day, and then the the other witnesses say, yes, it happened during a thunderstorm. Got it. And I will tell you, I went back just to see if I could find a little weather historical data, and according to what I was where I was looking, it was fair and sunny uh, from the, to the and I, so I don't and I'm not saying your I think your research yeah. is better. Um, I'm just saying if people are listening and they're going back and looking, I we think you, you a, have to find a very official uh, look. Don't just do a Google expert. search for this. We had an expert conduct that search. Okay. We had an expert, and the information was on some arcane data 
database. It was in some arcane database. Probably handwritten on a, on a ledger yeah, someplace. <laughs> right. But uh, this, uh, this fellow was uh, a uh, – he actually did all of the work on the Ramey memo, and he's a doctor of optometry. But he did the, the, the search on the weather. Got and it. what was interesting was uh, after he found this – Mm-hmm. He said by the next day it had been removed. It had been removed. Wait, what had that, been removed? The, 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 that, weather, that weather chart. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. So they huh. had got – whoever was the keeper of that must have learned, uh-oh, somebody's, uh, somebody's interested in this. you know. And the only reason you would be interested in this – you know, going back to a, a weather uh, report for sure. uh, the first week in July of 1947. Right. Oh, they're looking for the day, the day of the uh, the cr- the uh, crash. And right. He found it, and uh, I tr- you know, I trust him. He's he's excellent. At least it wasn't so burned in like a, a barrel fire. I mean, that's a lot of this stuff is, you know, they're looking, yeah. they're trying to cover it up. I, it ends up burned someplace. Have to go back, I will have to go back with him to find out exactly what took place. But he he notified us that it, that he found the weather chart for, for that week. And the only the only day or the only time there was a uh, thunderstorm mm-hmm. was uh, on the evening of July the 2nd. That's fascinating. And you combine uh, that with the uh, visual sighting of the right. same day and uh, the, the uh, witnesses who lived there and they remember this great thunderstorm and this funny explosion that they heard mm-hmm. between the thunderclaps. Yeah, so, which which makes sense because this is – it's rural now, 75 years later. I mean this was – Cattle country. I mean, you know, I don't think there were farms, but there were a lot of range, open oh, range. Cattle, and, dairy, dairy, yeah. dairy uh, farms. If something, expl- I mean, if, uh, people who, who live in the city don't understand. I grew up in the country that uh, it's different when there's no lights around, when there's not a big population, when there's just animals. A lot of, anim- lot of animals. <laughs> Sound <know>. travels. Uh, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's very different. So that's, so that's actually interesting. So if July 2nd was the date... From what I understand, Mac. So Mac Brazel is is um, part of the. He he finds one of these sites, and well, uh, let me. I, I want to get. I'm getting ahead of myself there because the other thing I was confused about is what was the trajectory of this object? Because there seems to be. If I'm going to say this, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but there seemed to be a debris field where this explosion happens. The craft doesn't completely obliterate. There's still some form of it left. It travels a little bit. There seems to be a place where two passengers were ejected, which I think is called the Deep Proctor site. Right. Uh, there's then, then, you're then on, there's. You're, you're on a roll. Keep going. Okay, okay, okay. All right, all right. And then it's, I think it's slowly moving southeast towards Roswell. It, it happens up in the, the north west corner of New Mexico. So you can see the trajectory, which I'm sure you followed. Yep. And then it. I think it crash lands. There may be three or four spots, but then there's the craft actually hits ground north of Roswell where there is a, um, a teardrop shaped craft and four bodies, three alive, one, I'm sorry, three dead, one alive. And so there's three separate fields, but that also is six bodies, which is never really addressed in the book. Uh, so how much of that is correct? Is that the proper trajectory? Did this seem to blow up and lose control? What exactly happened? Well, uh, 
you got the tra trajectory correct. The, okay. The trajectory was northwest to southeast. Okay. Okay. In New Mexico. In New Mexico, central New Mexico. And it's during this uh, thunder and lightning storm. Mm -hmm. And uh, the question is, was it an internal explosion that, that caused it to come apart or was it something external? We, it's speculation on our part, uh, Daniel. Uh, the, ex the shell of the craft exploded into little pieces. If, if it was internal, like, uh, oh, Gort, you hit the wrong button. Uh, <laughs> you got the names of you got the names of the pilots. That's amazing. <laughs> Did you interview Gort? <laughs> that, that would be that would that's speculation. <laughs> I know. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. The, uh, the only the best external explanation is a lightning strike. Because okay. uh, if you've ever been in New Mexico at that time, the lightning is just oh, oh, it's awesome. It's awesome. So if it was external, it was a lightning strike that blew apart the uh, shell. The internal cabin, and, and when that blows apart, two occupants fall to their demise at the deproctor site, which you have named. Okay, okay. Two are, two are blown out and, and fall to their demise on a low bluff. Uh, two and a half miles east of the Brazel debris field, where all this stuff comes down. That's the Brazel debris field where the rancher found the next day all this field full of uh, uh, little pieces of wreckage. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm. No ship inta intact. There are just a, a, a pasture full of this wreckage. Got it. Okay. That's okay. That's the debris field. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So, and when that ship exploded, two of the occupants fell to their death on the de debris uh, deproctor site. Mm -hmm. So there's still three left in there in the inner cabin, whether it was an inner cabin or an escape pod of some sort, the teardrop shaped uh, inner cabin or escape uh, pod continues sure. aloft for another 30 miles uh, southwest, southeast, and it comes to rest about 30 to 40 miles north, northwest of Roswell. It's called the impact site. That's mm -hmm. where what was left, the teardrop thing, mm -hmm. slightly damaged, comes to rest 30 to uh, 35 miles uh, north, northwest of Roswell. Two are dead, and one is still alive. So you have a total of five occupants five okay. four of them four of them meet their fate in the explosion and, and the uh crash one is still alive and walking around now i do want to point i want to say something here because i'm confused at this point in the story because in the book there's a most of the book talks about four occupants three dead one alive that then get taken back and a lot of the corroborating testimony that you get says as such when they're brought to the hospital when they're carried right. out uh the first time i hear about two additional occupants is when you mentioned the deep proctor site and deep proctor was a seven-year-old kid who was walking around with mac brazel and there's other kind of mysteries that you leave uh of what they saw because there's other stuff but but you mentioned two bodies there my math says six total, but not and never at any point in the book or in any of the stories do you hear any more than four. So I'm a little confused at this point and no, what the maximum. Four, four dead, one alive is what we is okay. what our book talks about. Okay, uh, it's possible I misread that. I heard I thought it was yeah, four total. Two, okay, 
two at the deep Proctor site. Okay. And two at the impact site are all, so there's four dead. dead. Yeah. And then the one that's still alive is walking around, which okay, ultimately so at somewhere along the line, uh, uh, you know, pass, you know, they, uh, dies. Right. So total five. Okay. Um, and I'm curious and you're not going to have an answer for this, but the early, cause I think it was July 4th, you know, by July 4th, there's still, I think that's when Mac Brazel actually goes to the, to Roswell or to, to try to claim he goes some on the, He goes on Sunday the 5th. Oh, on the 5th. Okay. So, so what's interesting to me, and this is just, a, this is just a thought that I had, is if it crashes, if this event happens on the 2nd and he doesn't even alert anybody until the 5th, that's three days. I am shocked that there was even, after surviving a crash, that there was any creature that was alive for three days. And if that's the case, you know, why isn't, you know, hitting that, uh, there's got to be advanced, you know, communication device. Like, hey, come grab me. I just blew up. Like, uh, well, that's that's weird to me. But I don't know if that's, yeah. you know. That's all, that's all speculation. Sure, uh, of course. It's just, it's a thought that came to my head because, the, uh, you know, the, you got bodies laying bodies for three, four days. We're, we're going by what the witnesses uh, have sure, told us, sure. uh, Daniel. And uh, uh, Mac Brazel was not aware of the bodies until later on. Mm-hmm. Because the, on the debris field, there were no bodies. He was unaware of the Deep Proctor body site until later. And the one that was still alive, he still had the ship. Because uh, they were out in the, in the desert from... The evening of July second, mm-hmm. until Mac Brazel goes out the next day, he finds the debris field, no no bodies, mm-hmm. and uh, the bodies are not discovered at the impact site until the morning of the seventh, July wow. the seventh. So it's even longer. But but the one that's alive, he still has the inner cabin as a as a refuge, you know. Yeah. He, so he. But the other the other two had succumbed, yeah. whether they succumbed at the crash or later on uh, were were injured and then succumbed. But the one that was still alive, he still had the the the, the refuge uh, the, of the escape capsule. Okay, yeah, and I don't so, I, I don't want I don't mean to bring a lot. It's just something that came to. I know you're not going to have answers. It's just something I thought about because I mean even the army doesn't you know leave no man behind. I mean you know. Uh, <laughs> but this is a little before that. So. <laughs> sure, but okay. So let let's talk about the things that 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 you uncovered. So we have this debris field. We have the explosion. The incident has happened. There's a crap. There's bodies. There's debris. So Mac Brazel goes out, and what does he discover? And the other important thing here is who does he bring along with him? Because. I feel like in the story, if I'm getting this correctly, getting this correct, there were several ranchers who came out and saw this as well. This was kind of like uh, the worst kept secret in the area. Yes. Uh, the thing is, uh, Daniel, uh, the ranchers uh, living uh, northwest of Roswell and south of Corona, they were used to having crashes out there, whether they were aircraft or uh guided missiles they were used to having crashes out there really and they, guided oh, yeah. missiles are used to guided missile crashes well, <laughs> i gotta live out there <laughs> yeah from alamogordo that's right. where you know that's sure. you know that's where the v2s were, were right and uh, they were also developing guided missiles and god knows what else sure right they were used to having uh, airplane crashes and what have you and they were always at the site before the military 
mm-hmm. the word always got word always got to the civilians before the military ever got out there, and they mm-hmm. would take souvenirs. They would mm-hmm. take souvenirs, so the, the the civilians were aware of it before the military. And when the military arrived, whatever ranchers that they uh, that were there, they uh, threatened to be, remain silent. And they also threatened them again just to make sure they got the word that, you know, if, if you talk about this, bad things are going to happen to you. So, right. Um, that's the, the, so you have the ranchers are, are aware of this and they, they didn't tell any, they talked among themselves, but they didn't go to any officials like, mm-hmm. oh, there's a crash out here because the officials were already there uh, uh, to warn them to stay away and get out of here and don't say anything. Oh, okay. Okay. Got so, it. So uh, that, that's how that, uh, that's why the civilians remain uh, uh silent for so long is because they were threatened with mm. their lives by the the government by the military who at that point 1947 you already mentioned it after world war ii our military was never held in such high esteem as they were at that time having mm. defeated germany and japan so right. whatever the military said went you know mm-hmm. so if they say they're going to kill you well oh they're going to kill us Right, right. Well, and that actually makes a lot of sense because when you think about if a plane crashes, right, let's say they're flying, a, you know, some kind of prototype and it crashes. Well, the military is going to know where it went. And so they're going to be on site very quickly. This is an obviously an unscheduled crash because it's (laughs) so it makes sense that it would sit there for so long. Right. There was nobody well, looking for it, but it, yeah. it, it was discovered by a group of archaeologists, uh, the impact site. Mm-hmm. Um, Mac, uh, 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 Mac Brazel discovered the debris field site, but also just before he came into Roswell on the 5th, you know, to report it, uh, uh, he noticed the the uh, two two miles away, he noticed the circling buzzards. He said, "Oh, there's something dead over there," mm, mm-hmm. and that's how he discovered the D. Proctor site. D. Proctor was with him. There were also some other little kids, uh, ranchers' kids, uh, accompanied them, and that's how they they found the D. Proctor site was mm. because of the the birds and the because you know if you're a, a rancher out there, you. You know what the animals are doing, and they're giving you clues to what's going on. And uh, mm-hmm. so the circling buzzards said, "Uh oh, something's dead over there." And he went over there, and he found the two bodies. Yeah. And we have wit- we have witnesses to that. We don't make it up. We have witnesses to that that accompanied uh, uh, D. Proctor and uh, Mac Brazel, and that's how we got. The- that's how we learned about the D. Proctor site from witnesses. Witnesses to Roswell, if I if I may, if I may stick another. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the uh, the impact site, we learned yeah. the same uh, from a, a, uh, a Roswell fireman who got there first. Then that's he 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 saw the two bodies, the two dead ones hanging out the sh- out of the ship, but he he saw some movement out of the periphery of his eye, and he looked over, and there's the there's the live one walking around. Yeah, and. Uh, well, this so this is the, the the alien bodies part of this story. I think you know one of the things I wanted to mention earlier is when you talk about UFOs in America, I think there's a sliding scale of belief, you know. And I think, and, and I mean this, I think yeah. that a lot of people believe that there's probably weird stuff in the sky. You know, a fewer amount believe that they're probably 
advanced prototypes, America or Russian or whatever. An even smaller amount believe that they may be extraterrestrial. An even smaller amount believes that we've been visited. You know, you go down this sliding scale. I think the fewest people in the country would believe that we recovered alien bodies. I think that's the hardest part of this story for people to to believe, the average person. But I also think that it's important to prove that irrefutably, which I think you've done through testimony, or at least as well as you can with testimony. But that's the important part of this, because everything else you know, the, the because of the Cold War, it was easy to say this was a, a mogul weather balloon that was monitoring Russian um, right. Russian nuclear weapons. It's easy to say, oh, well, the bodies were, you know, test dummies from crash dummies, even though they weren't invented until 10 years later. It's easy we to say that it it's... The, yeah, we call it the dummies from the sky. Right, yeah. It's easy to say that and have people believe it because you have that Russian narrative and we're fighting the Russians, whatever. But the, the bodies are important because... If that is the case, right, that the spaceship can be an advanced prototype. You know, we, we have memory metal now. Uh, you know, you can say that adva- any type of technology is not difficult, especially when you had so much science fiction on the air. You could people could believe this was not nexus necessarily extraterrestrial. If you had bodies to me, that's the part that makes this irrefutable. This th- that makes this very, very different you're, from you're every right other on. story. You're you, right you, on that, Daniel. You're you know right what I mean? On. Yes, yes. And that, that is exactly what, what makes this different. Because you could say, oh, we've been developing the uh, uh, nitinols, uh, we've been yeah, developing right. these metals, and, our, and that can be explained away. Mm-hmm. That can be explained away as our latest exotic metal. But you can't explain three and a half foot tall little bodies with big heads right. uh, that are alive. And right, they, right. they're humanoid, but they're right. not human. Mm-hmm. You can't explain away that. Yeah. And you mentioned the sliding scale. Most intelligent people will admit, will uh, come to the, say that, yes, there is. there has to be other life in the universe. There has to be, with the billions of the galaxies and stars and all that, there has to be other life in the universe. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's his name? The uh, the astronomer, the famous astronomer. Um, uh, he was on television a lot. His name escapes me at the moment. Uh, okay. He said uh, he believes that we have up to two million intelligent uh, uh, life. Two million intelligent life in the Mil- in the Milky Way galaxy alone. Mm-hmm. There are up to two million intelligent planets uh, with intelligent life and um he's the guy that goes billions and billions of, i can't remember his Neil name the grass tyson he's the only one that's popping into my head um oh my he's he died a few years ago um it'll, Not near it'll, the come me, it'll come to me this <laughs> evening <laughs> okay we'll, we'll put we'll put an addendum in there but yeah, yeah. i mean it's it's interesting i mean carl i was sagan. Uh, carl, carl sagan, sagan. Yeah. He said there's, a, there's he believes there's at least two million uh, intelligent uh, life forms in the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way is one of a billion galaxies. So most people uh, now accept other life, and uh, but what they don't accept, where the divide comes, is that some of that life has visited Earth. Mm-hmm. That's where the right. divide comes. They don't they don't believe that. That's exactly right. Yeah. For, for myself, 
I'm positive because of the I, I know that the Roswell case was a case of extra uh, terrestrial visitation. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm positive of that. Mm-hmm. And um, so but not everybody is, you know, knows about Roswell, uh, you know, and these uh, these latest uh, photographs, uh, machine gun photographs that were been on TV now for a couple of years. Those are UFOs without a doubt. Uh, the mm. Army, uh, the Air Force, not the Air Force, they don't say anything since Roswell. Right. But uh, uh, the, the Navy, these were Navy gun gun camera films of UFOs that were being chased. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, they've been on TV and they are certainly UFOs. Exactly what, what, what they are, I don't know, but they are UFOs. So I think the acceptance factor today is better than it's ever been because right. of because of things like that uh, but there are you know but the 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 uh, science to scientists and people of prominence their fallback position is show me a piece of physical evidence right show me a piece of physical evidence that's what their out is well they don't know that uh, or, or else they're unaware that testimony, and you know this, Daniel, mm-hmm. uh, testimony in a court of law that is credible is evidence. Right. That is evidence. Credible testimony in a court of law is is evidence. But they, they think, they consider evidence to be a physical piece of something, whether it's a, a body or the steering wheel for one of the, you know, for the craft uh, or mm-hmm. the taillight. Uh, <laughs> right, <and> yeah. <laughs> That's to them. Show me a piece of that, and I'll believe. And well, we know there are pieces out there. We do know that, but so far, they have not uh, uh, borne fruition. Uh, well, the- well, I will say for scientists, I actually understand that because they deal in facts and figures and testimony. Well, in both a real court and the court of public opinion, hold a lot of sway. You know, uh, it's di- it's different. There's a different measure. So so I, I don't blame scientists for, for saying that. Yep. But I will, you know, the, the physical evidence, it is interesting to me because as you as you go through the book, you start to realize that, you know, souvenir taking it has, has not this is not something that's new. I mean, people destroyed the Jack the Ripper, uh, you know, the Jack the Ripper murder site because right. they were kept stealing handkerchiefs dipped in blood. I mean, it, people have been looking for right. souvenirs forever. So that doesn't surprise me that that happened. But what does surprise me, Tom, is given the large number of ranchers who were collecting souvenirs before the military got involved. And then you've got stories of people who were. I don't want to say carelessly, but loaning it onto to, to trains and into hangers. Yep. And it's just like, it seems like these are open boxes of just material. Like someone grabbed yep. a banker's box and just crammed whatever they could in there. Things fell out. There's one story. Uh, th- there's one story in there that I don't want to say is dubious, but if it's real, it's the absolutely fantastical. I where know guy, which one you're talking about. <laughs> where, where a guy puts, a, you know, basically loads up, I believe, a train with a box full of this stuff. A piece yes. of the craft falls out. He does that kind of like, uh, he looks around, steps on it. The train goes away. You know, he goes to tie his shoe, picks it up, puts it into his pocket, uh, ends up giving it to his son who uses it in a magic, his magic yes. act. His son is a magician. Uh, and of course, if you can bend a piece of metal and make it, you know, turn back into its original shape, what a great finale. Uh, so this it, word gets out and then, you know, someone breaks into his home and then that piece is stolen. So 
you know, if I saw that on TV, I would believe it more. Um, I'm not saying it didn't happen. It's just fantastical. But Charles, Charles Austin Wood. Is yeah. the, <laughs> yes. His, his son was uh, the uh, story occurred in 19 uh, for his sixth birthday, the son's sixth birthday in 1952. He gave him the piece of uh, metal yeah. or whatever, you know, the material. Yeah. He had kept it since 1947, never told anybody, his family or anything. Right. But he gave it to his son in on his sixth birthday to use in his uh, – he was a uh, budding magician. Yeah. And uh, for his finale, he he would take the piece out of the – and, you know, wad it up and then let it just sort of float there and unfurl <laughs> itself. But right. word got around. Great word, trick, by the way. It's a great trick. Yes. <laughs> Word got around, as it often does, and, right. and pretty soon, not just his little playmates uh, were watching him do this, but adults were showing up to see mm -hmm. this strange piece of metal, and then at some point, uh, it disappeared. Right. Somebody took it. Yeah. Well, and I, and I, so I think, so two things I want to mention early on in your forward in the book, you talked to Edgar Mitchell, who I think was from Roswell, and he describes how much of a small town it was. And how yeah. things just, I'm from, I'm grew up in a small town. He's exactly right. Word travels fast yes. in a small town. Um, you know, uh, and so that, that's part one of this, which I think is true. Part two is, this is what I wanted to get to before, which is there, there seems to be a lot of people who took these souvenirs. Now I know that the government had lots of bullying tactics to get this material back, but I, I, I cannot believe given the amount of people who took stuff that there is not one piece of something out there. There, there, there has to be. Uh, the fact that you haven't found it is not surprising because that isn't. It could be in a vault someplace. It could be in a box in someone's barn. So that doesn't surprise me. But there, there has to be. Given as much of the stuff that got out, as I mentioned, this was a sloppy organization. This is the first time it happened. Uh, I, I'm surprised that that it's, something's not out there, Tom. Is what I'm saying. Well. We believe that there is stuff still out there. We have stories of people who had pieces that over the years, they kept it on the t top of the TV set, you know, mm, <laughs> something right, like that. Yeah. And it just, it, good be, reception. When, you, when you move, you know, things get lost. And mm. in every case that, uh, like that, it, 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 over the years, it disappears. Mm -hmm. Now, there's one case, uh, because we do know the, the person. We do know the person that we have one witness lives on the East Coast. One witness lives on the West Coast. There's another one. We have three witnesses who say that this person told them that he has a piece. He has a piece of the metal or the material. We know this. We know this fellow. Hmm. You, you would recognize the last name. Okay. But I'm not going to give away the first name. Okay. And we have asked him, show us the piece of metal you have. Did you oh. say it like that? Did you say it like, no, <laughs> show us said, the piece of metal you have? We, we, are, we are told that you have a piece of the metal. And yeah. it would make sense considering who he is. Sure. Oh, uh, what? What? He he go, he gives us the uh, there. I don't know who told you that. Well, three different people that you know told us the same story mm -hmm. one lives on the west coast one of the oh well the, no i don't and he 
he is lying to us. Mm -hmm. I believe he, he is lying to us because we have three separate witnesses and he was in the position to have a peace. And uh, that's just one person. But right. uh, what happened was there hmm. was the initial round of de death threats, you know, the initial down, uh, round of death threats. And then they brought in this fellow from Wright Patterson who was a brutal, he was a brutal guy. It was like, only, you know, you, you see these things on the wall, break glass in case of fire. Right. He was, he was the guy, break glass when you need his uh, strong arm, brutal, brutal guy. And Piece they of alien spacecraft, around. yeah. They sent him around to the to the ranchers. Yeah. And to show you what the kind of guy he was, you, you remember the old pirate movies? There was always a pirate that had a, instead of a hand, had a hook. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> well, this fellow lost his hand. Instead of having a prosthetic put on, he had a hook put on. No, are you are you serious? This like in true. real life, he had a hook put yeah, on? Yes, he lost his hand, <laughs> and his daughter told us instead of a, a prosthetic, which, you know, is like you just slip him on, he right. had a hook installed. So he's got one arm and one hook. They sounds, like a, sounds like a Bond villain. I'm trying to make people believe this story, Tom. You're making it sound this unbelievable. This is, absolute, <laughs> this is absolutely true. Okay. This is absolutely true. They sent him around to the ranchers. Uh -huh. They sent him around to the ranchers to reinforce to remain silent. This is, it sounds, yeah, but that's what they did. That is yeah. what they did for a weather balloon, I might uh, tell right. you. Yeah, yeah, that's well. We haven't even gotten to the excuses. I actually, uh, you know, you mentioned early on about the um, about the newspapers. There's a funny story about the newspapers um, that it came. Well, let's. There's two things I want to get to before we finish up, and we're running out of time here. Since we're talking about the crash site, can you just walk me through the types of debris that were found? I have a list here. Um, so I, I'm there's a couple things on here I want to make sure that people know about and and how strange that this this was and how different from weather balloon material it would be. Um, and let's so we'll say the debris field. Just let me know what was what was found there. Okay, uh, you had a sheep pasture. Uh almost a mile long and almost uh, 300 feet wide, covered with palm-sized pieces of two types of debris. The thin metal, the thin pieces that you couldn't bend at all. You, you, you couldn't cut them, burn them, scratch them. As stiff as a board, you couldn't, light as a feather. Mm -hmm. That was one type. The other type was the so-called memory metal that was pliable, very thin, all looking like aluminum, very thin, but you couldn't cut it, you couldn't burn it. And that that was the so-called memory metal. Mm -hmm. And that's our that is our holy grail of Roswell, is the is a piece of memory metal. Because you don't have to send it out to a lab and never hear about it again. All you have to mm -hmm. do is wad it up right. right in front and and that's the memory metal. Uh, there is also something like fiber optics. Right. A precursor of fiber optics. Uh, there was also a seamless black box, about uh, uh, six inches uh, square cube. A hmm. black box with no one knows what happened to that. No one knows what happened to the seamless black box, other than it got with the rest of the wreckage. Sure. Uh, there was the. Um, these I-beams, so-called I-beams, because they're on a cross-section, they're shaped like the letter I. Right, they're about yeah. 18 inches long, but they had symbology on the inner 
surface of it, mm-hmm. symbology. I think it was like, a, uh, you know, like in the movie, uh, the, uh, uh, oh my goodness, the uh, Tom Hanks movie with the, uh, the, the Da Vinci Code, mm-hmm. where they have right. this key, key they insert in. Right. To, uh, I think oh, it was okay. some. I think it was some sort of directional uh, device. Go to Earth, or go to uh, something. You know, something like that. Right. Uh, that's exactly right. That, that's exactly yeah, what some it is. sort yeah. of directional key way. Uh, you know, that's 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 speculation. But sure, uh, sure, but, sure. But they have the. It's indestructible and has this symbology that no one has able been able to to figure out. Hmm. And. Um, uh, I'm sure I'm leaving out uh, some other stuff, but those were the main things. Right. Uh, uh, nothing like no one in our 600 wit- witnesses, no one has described a balloon event. Right. One right. The, in, in the pasture. No one. Well, there's even and, and definitely not stuff that's indestructible, which I, it raises the question on how this thing blew up if the stuff's indestructible, because it's that must have been quite an impressive explosion. Uh, you know, one of the things that that one quick story on the how instruct, indestructible it is, is you mentioned how oh, I'm going to get the names wrong here. Um, but I believe it was Jesse Marcel and possibly Cavett, who are two characters we didn't quite get to, who are very important to the story. And so they were I believe they were friends. Hopefully these are these the right two people and the bridge night am i the name's correct yeah at least okay so they they were two friends and they and their wives would get together and play bridge which is a four-person game and i believe you got this from one of the wives that the two men uh marcel and cavett were trying to boil a piece of this in in the kitchen while they're at a bridge night they were they were good friends it's such a great story because it's so mundane and it's very believable because you could imagine two people who work together on something like this would do something like that. Try whatever they could at the time to figure out what this was. Yes, yes, they were they were uh, uh, po- not poker. What did they, what did they they played bridge? Uh, bridge. Uh, it was bridge. Yeah. Yes, and so they were at the Marcel house uh, pl- playing bridge. Where, and we get the story from Cavett's wife Mary, mm-hmm. and uh, she says the uh, Sheridan Cavett, the CIC uh, captain, and Jesse Marcel, the intelligence major. They went into the kitchen, and they mm-hmm. were into the and they took a piece of this uh, material into the kitchen, and put it in a pot, and they were trying to boil it to see if they could <laughs> deform it in some way because every right. it resisted everything else, and they could they couldn't uh, they couldn't deform it in any way. Sure. So uh, somebody when they when they came back in, you know, they're shaking their head. And somebody said, you're not supposed to have that. I don't know if that was Sheridan Cabot or what. But So mm. Cabot and Marcel went out the back, the kitchen door. They went out the back door and came back without it. So huh. all of these years, we're thinking that underneath the patio, that's, <laughs> there's some flower of, pot. Yeah. yeah underneath, <laughs> no, underneath the, they had a new patio that had just worked. Oh. So, you know, they're, and they're not always flush. They, we think they put it under the ground. Now, unfortunately, what's happened is the patio, that patio today is yeah. inside the house. It, uh, it's the floor of one of the bedrooms. So we we offered one time to buy the house, but they, you know, when it was up for sale, and uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't sell it to, to us. But we offered the – but all these years, uh, Daniel, yeah. we think that there's a – a piece, a piece under there. Under there. 
And uh, <laughs> we even offered to, to rebuild, and it just we just couldn't make a deal. And, I, I mean that if if you're listening to this and you don't appreciate the dedication, Tom, that you have to this story that you were offering to buy the house in order to find a piece of metal. Uh, I mean, if you, if anyone questions your dedication, uh, I think they need to question themselves. But I also love that in a very similar way to, you know, like Indiana Jones and the last crusade where you have this book where you think you've nailed down where there might possibly be these pieces. You just can't get a hold of them. I mean, there's something, there's something great about that story as well as, as this other story. And we didn't get to quite a lot. The, the thing I do want to mention is I'm going to put this up on the website. You mentioned the, um, the, uh, uh, the news report that, that went out in the, the daily record, uh, the, the army put out an, a press release. It wasn't in the early edition newspaper, which I think was the daily planet. I don't know. It was a Roswell something, but the Roswell daily record came out in yeah. the midday and they carried it. And that was it. Yes. I, so I recently, this was also what I heard was the radio call, uh, which, you know, says that, that the army has recovered a flying disc and it's being sent to Wright Patterson. Yes. Now I yes. thought that was a very brief radio call. I actually, I have an it MP3 was. version of it. Yes. Uh, There's Taylor a longer Brand. version. There's a longer version, Tom. Mine is two and a half minutes long. And I listened to it yesterday. It is a news report where they talk about where it's going, what they found. There's actually an incredible amount of detail in that report that I didn't I didn't listen to the first time around. Yes. I'm going to put it on the website so people can listen to something contemporary from the time. But as you mentioned, within two days, you know, that was, quote unquote, debunked for this mogul project uh, and people forgot all about it. But it, it they, well, there was a, well, they mogul, sent out a lot of information. Mogul did not come along and uh, it was a weather balloon for 30 years and mogul did oh. not appear. Did not appear until 1992. Okay. Somebody, somebody said, "Oh, it's got to be this Project Mogul, which is just a bunch of a bunch of weather balloons, mm-hmm, a bunch right. of weather balloons tied together, lifting a, an acoustic sensor, trying to listen on an expected detonation right. of the Soviet Union's atomic bomb." Right, but right. That did not appear until 1992. Okay. So okay. for 30 right. years, it was a weather balloon. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think it was de- Mogul was declassified and it made a perfect, I mean, it was a perfect cover story yeah. for what it they sounds, wanted to do. It sounds great until you look at it and it falls apart like a cheap suit. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, so, so we, this is this, we didn't get to a lot of stuff. Do you have time? There's a couple of the questions. Can I do a, do you have 10 more minutes to maybe talk oh, about yeah. a couple? Okay. Yeah. So we're going to do a little bonus episode here. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the things we didn't quite get to, right. uh, but this is just a fantastic story. And Tom, I mean this sincerely, the work you've done collecting these, you know, these interviews, the hours of interviews, the, the, the way you've told every story from so many different angles. If, if someone listening is not a believer and you don't want to believe in Roswell, okay, there's nothing I'm going to do to change your mind. But if you're on the fence and you're curious about what really happened from the point of view of the military who were involved, this book tells you every angle. And to me, Tom, leaves no question in my mind that at the very least, something very strange happened in Roswell that was not a weather balloon. And at the other end of that spectrum, This was a genuine craft from another planet that not only had an exploded ship that was driven through town, which we may talk about in a little bit, but that had alien bodies. Just a fantastic story. And you did a great job, Tom. Uh, I just want to give you absolute uh, props for that. Just an incredible book. You did a great job with this. Well, I I am humbled. I am humbled. Uh, (laughs) I'm I'm glad you're asking these things uh, uh, because it makes me think. Because mm-hmm. I, lots of times I, I just, uh, you know, I just 
recite you know the timeline and something like that but yeah. you're you're making you're making me think here so that's, that's my I, job I, I appreciate that i really do i really yeah. do well, and I, I appreciate you saying that <laughs> and i appreciate that this is not a paranormal focused show mm. uh like a lot of the, the you know shows are or they you know they're interested in uh the paranormal and right, uh, this right. is this is a as i understand is is like not that it's no, a, it's a mainstream uh, mm. talk show. Yes. For the right. most part. Yeah. I mean, I like weird stuff. I'm not going to lie to you, Tom. Uh, and this falls in that category. But I don't believe anything without some level of credible proof. You'll, if you look at even the fantastical stuff that I've had on the show, there are people who I believe are very credible, except the aforementioned Bill Burns. But that was halfway through the interview when he flip flopped yeah. on me. Uh, but but whatever. He's a nice guy. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, don't, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. That but was, we. Uh, no, no we, but we will. We'll, we're going to get into some more stuff. We're going to do this this uh, t- ten minute bonus. Get into some extra stuff. So if you're listening, you want to hear yeah. some more with Tom. Let's get to that. Oh, you know, I don't think I got. Are you on social media? Can people find you? How do people get a hold of uh, Our, what you're doing? You're, you're not going to believe this, but mm-hmm. we our website we've had since 2007, mm-hmm. and uh, co opted by the Chinese. It's called, it's called, it's called, this is, this is true. As we speak, we were, our website has been co-opted by the Chinese, some Chinese company. It's, it's called www.roswellinvestigator.com. We've had it since 2007 and then all of a sudden it disappeared. And so we did the research and some Chinese company has it. We've been trying to get back online ever since. And I don't think we've made it yet. Unbelievable. So, I mean, you yeah. know, that's you got to get you back online. I went to that website. I was hoping you had a different one because it, it goes to some sports betting site. Uh, yeah. well, <laughs> there you go. There you go. But that was our site for since 2007. And then all of a sudden says, hey, Tom, what's the matter with your site? And I said, what do you mean? It's because it, 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 it's some sports betting or it's something else. And what, are you, what are you talking about? Yeah. And so uh, we did some research and the uh, – Going to the you know the keeper of the domains or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that that Chinese company has that now. How did well? How did that happen? Well, they. I don't know how you know. I don't wow. know how that happens, Daniel. I really don't. So we've been trying ever since to get our site back, and uh, uh, right now it's. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I, my my co-author was uh, that was doing that and. I can't even get in touch with him at the moment. I don't know where he's at. So. In China, probably. Maybe he's yeah. maybe he sold you out. Maybe he sold you out, Tom. Uh, we don't know. Um, of course he didn't, but it's it's a fun story. Uh, well, I, I'm going to put the links to the book and everything on the website uh, so that people can get a hold of it. But for now, Tom, genuinely, thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you for doing all this hard work. It's, it's incredible. It was, uh, Daniel, definitely my pleasure. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. (laughs) You got it. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. 
you're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.